Well, uh, this morning uh, we are continuing in our study through the book of Acts, and we are approaching the end of the book of Acts. We are getting a little bit closer every week, but before we get to the end, we still have a lot of lessons to learn from the book of Acts. And this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, if you want to follow along in your Bible or on the YouVersion app uh, under the events, you can follow along there. And uh, as you're turning there, I just want to recap where we were last week in uh, chapter 20. You know, Paul is traveling and he's got a deadline to make. He's wanting to get to Jerusalem. That's his goal. Pentecost is coming and he wants to be there. All the Jews are going to be there. It's going to be an opportunity to share. And so he wants to make it to Jerusalem. But he also has this desire to stop in Ephesus because he wants to impart uh, some, uh, just some advice. He wants to uh, give them an example to follow. But he knows he has to hurry. He's in a rush to get to Jerusalem. And so while he is in Miltus, he sends for uh, the elders at the church of Ephesus and they meet him there. And when they get there, he just kind of shares from the heart. You see Pastor Paul, you know, compared to uh, the other types of Paul we see in the book of Acts, there's the defender of the faith Paul, there's the evangelist Paul, but here it's Paul the pastor, and he's pouring out his heart to these believers, and, you know, he starts by telling them, hey, look at my example, follow my example, here's what I've done in front of you for the last three years that I've ministered here, I have, you know, served with humility Nothing was about me. Everything was about glory to God. It was all about Him. I served with tears. All your heartbreaks, all your pain, all the, thing that you, all the things you went through, you've gone through, I share in that with you. And as I pray for you and as I minister to you, I shed tears seeing the things that you've gone through. I served in the midst of opposition when all these people were against me. I continued to serve. Then he says, I preached. I preached in the synagogues. I preached in your homes. From house to house to house, I went sharing the gospel, and I went sharing this message. Turn to God and repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I preached everywhere I had the opportunity, and I sacrificed for you. Paul tells him, I've, I've sacrificed, not just for you, for the sake of the gospel. I'm willing to go wherever, wherever I'm called. And when I get there, I could face opposition. I could not face opposition. But in Jerusalem, he knew he was facing opposition. But I'm going to go, regardless. Regardless of what I have to give up. Regardless if it's my life, whatever. I will give it all for the sake of the gospel. Then... He turns from his example to this message of encouragement, advice to the elders at Ephesus, and he tells them, first of all, guard yourselves. Guard yourselves. You are leaders. You are overseers. You are the people who are supposed to protect the flock. So here's what you need to do. You first need to guard yourself. How can you lead others if you can't guard yourself? If you're not doing the things that you're supposed to be doing, if you're not living the life you're supposed to be living, how can you guard those that you have been entrusted with? And then he tells them, now guard your flocks. Guard your flocks. Why? Because uh, savage wolves are going to come and devour your flock. 
false teachers, those who are, are saying things that aren't scripturally true, who are preaching false doctrines. Beware of them. And then he encourages them also not to just look at people from the outside, but also check on the inside because there are those who will come from the inside and try to destroy the flock. And then he tells them here is one important thing that you need to remember as well. Be committed to God every day and to the word of his grace. Be committed every day to speaking with God, talking with God, doing life with God, and then being in his word every single day. And those things aren't things that you can do one this day and one the next. No, these are things, they go together every day. Prayer, scripture, prayer, scripture, every single day they go together. And then he tells them one more thing I want you to know. Help the weak. Help those who are weak, help those who can't help themselves, help the poor, help the broken, help the widowed, help the people around you. And, and what was so heartbreaking about that as we wrapped up talking about Acts chapter 20 is the fact that the church at Ephesus, they did so many things right. They did so many things right. And in Revelation chapter uh, 2, Paul tells them, hey, you, or Jesus tells them, hey, you've done all these things right. You're, you're casting out false idols, you hate false teaching, you're doing good work, you're persevering every single day, you're doing all the good things, but here's the problem. You forgot why you do it. You forgot your first love, you forgot the reason you're doing those things to begin with. And we talked about we can do all the good things in the world, but none of those things matter at all if we forget the reason we're doing those things, if we forget whom, for whom we're doing those things. It doesn't matter. And so those were just some words of encouragement that Paul gave the church at Ephesus that really apply to us as well. And so we're going to continue this morning in Acts chapter 21. And to me, I've always heard the saying, and I think it's true, life is full of lessons learned. And the thing I love about the book of Acts is it's lessons learned from examples of those who have come before us, who have served, who have gone through hardship. And this morning, we get tons of lessons that come to us from Acts chapter 21. And so we're going to start in Acts chapter 21, verse 1. And this is what Luke writes. He says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went aboard and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way, all of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. And so Acts chapter 21 starts very quick. It's bam, 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 here, 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 here. They're sailing. They are trying to get, or he is trying as hard as he can to get to Jerusalem, it says that they find a ship crossing over uh, to Phoenicia, so they get on board this ship. Probably a bigger vessel gives them an uh, opportunity to travel further. And one day, they stop at Tyre. They're supposed to unload their cargo, and they go and they seek out the disciples. This, uh, when it says they sought out, this means to look for. They had to go and find the disciples. They had to go and find the other believers. 
But they go and they find him. And it says that while they're there, uh, through the Spirit, they urge Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. There is danger awaiting. There is problems waiting there for you. Don't go to Jerusalem. Well, what does Paul do? He says, all right, fine, you're good. I'm not going to go. No, he doesn't say that. It says, when it was time to leave, we left and continued on the way. And all of them, wives, children, they accompany them, and they go to the beach, and they pray, and then they return home. This really says something about Paul, doesn't it? Just the kind of example, the kind of attitude, the kind of life that Paul lived. Seven days he's with the people, and they're urging him not to go. And when the time comes, they go and they pray with him, and they just encourage him. Paul just had that kind of attitude, that kind of example. But I always love this illustration, this idea of as somebody's leaving and going out and continuing their work, the idea of the body of believers coming together and rallying behind that person and encouraging them and praying for them as we send people out. That's the way it's supposed to be. Then the text continues in verse 7. It says, We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, I'm or in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason, where we were to stay he was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So Paul is continuing his travels, and he ends up staying at Caesarea, and he stays of, at the house of Philip the Evangelist. We know about Philip a little bit. Last time we saw Philip was in Acts chapter 8. Uh, he played a big part. He was one of the seven chosen by the apostles to serve the widows and the poor, but this one, he also evangelized. Philip and Stephen were the two that really are focused on because of the fact that they also went out and evangelized. And it says, after there had been a number of days, a prophet Agabus shows up. We remember Agabus too, Acts chapter 11, he comes and he prophesies. And now, uh, he is back, and he has this prophecy that whoever goes, or the person whose belt this belongs to, this person is going to be bound when they get to Jerusalem, but also to die in Jerusalem. And so, man, this this prophecy, or he's going to be bound in Jerusalem, and and Paul gives this response, man, uh, why are you breaking my heart? Why are you breaking my heart and why are you weeping? Don't you know I am ready to go and be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name 
of the Lord Jesus. No matter how they try to encourage him to stay away from Jerusalem, Paul is like, I am going to Jerusalem. There's no stopping me. God has called me to this, and I am going, and I am willing to be bound, and I am willing to die if that is what I am called to do. And it says that there was no chance of them dissuading him. We tried, and when we realized he wouldn't be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. Whatever happens, happens, because he is not going to change his mind. You know, there's a couple of interesting questions that stem from this passage, some that I I read this week that I thought were really interesting. One of the questions that has been asked about this is, is the Holy Spirit kind of, you know, going back on what he has said? You know, in, in Acts chapter 20, it seems like the Holy Spirit is leading him to go, and now through the Spirit, people are trying to persuade him not to go. Is the, is the Holy Spirit going back on his word? And the second question is, is Paul doing something wrong by not listening and, and staying where he's at? Well, I think the answer to both of these questions is no. No. No, the Spirit is not saying, do not go. The Spirit is simply warning him of the danger he is to face. He is going to face danger in Jerusalem. Was Paul ignoring the Spirit by not listening to the people who are trying to tell him to stay? No. They're encouraging him not to go, but they are not, you know, he is not doing anything wrong by saying, no, you're telling me to go or not to go, but the Spirit is leading me to go. It's an issue of, Man, you're facing danger if you do go. Just know that. If you go, there is danger waiting for you. He was getting a warning from the Spirit of what was waiting for him. And I just love Paul's response here. I just love Paul's response. I am going to go, and I am ready, and I'm willing to be bound, and I am willing to die if that is what is called of me. And you see, I don't think these people were ill-intentioned. I don't. I, I think they cared about Paul. I think they loved Paul. I think they knew what was waiting for Paul, and I think they just want him to be safe. I think that they don't want him to go because they know what is waiting for him. But here's what Paul realized. There is a cost to discipleship, and that's a question that we have to ask ourselves this morning. Can you pay the cost? Can you pay the cost? Because you see, Jesus did pay the cost for our sins on the cross. But there is a cost on our part to follow Jesus. And Paul realized that there is a cost to follow Jesus. In his case, his cost was, I'm going to walk right into danger. I'm going to walk right into trouble. And I am going to do what God has called me to do to try to bring Jews and Gentiles together This is what God has called me to do, and if it means that I'm going to be bound, if it means that I'm going to give up my life, then I will do it. That is the cost. You see, for us, there is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to following Him. Luke chapter 9, 23 through 26, Then He said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? 
Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Matthew chapter 10, 38 and 39 says, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. You see, I think the problem with these words are not the words themselves, it's kind of the mindset that we have put into the words. We've kind of taken this, these words out of context and, and twisted them to mean when we pick up our cross, it's a burden we bear. Yeah, you've probably heard that before, right? Like, oh, I don't like working at this place, but I have to, and it's just the cross I carry. It's the burden I bear. Man, I have to deal with these people every single day, and, and it drives me crazy, but guess what? That's the burden. That is the cross that I bear. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about here is picking up our cross daily and dying to ourselves Dying to ourselves, dying to our, our desires, our wants, the things that we dream of, the things that we think we need, this willingness to die to ourselves. Think about it. When somebody would uh, face crucifixion, the Romans would require that they carry their cross to the site of their death. So they would carry the instrument of their death. Every single day, we are called to carry the instrument of our death that we die to self. You see, that's what it's all about. Are we willing to die to ourselves? Are we willing to die? Are we willing to sacrifice ourselves for the good of the gospel? And you know, for some, to sacrifice means to sacrifice your life. For the apostles, that's what it meant. They sacrificed their life. They died for the sake of the gospel. And we don't have that as much here in the United States, but the question still remains, are we willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice your wants, your desires, the things you think you need in order that the gospel is shared, that the, that the good news is preached? See, we say that we are all in, that we are willing to do whatever God has called us to do good, but are you willing to sacrifice to do those things? Following Christ means to sacrifice. It means to sacrifice lifestyle choices that you make. It means to sacrifice your dreams. And see, the problem with this is too often we say, I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to pay the cost so long as what I am sacrificing for matches what my desires and my goals and my wants are. As long as what Jesus wants for me is exactly what I want for myself, then I am willing to pay the cost. And it was Jesus who also said, you got to hate your mother and your father to follow me. Not literally hate your mother and father, but when compared to me, your love for me must be greater than anybody in your life. Anybody around you, your love for me must be greater than that. Are we willing to pay the cost? Are we willing to sacrifice to follow Jesus? Are we willing every day to pick up and our cross and die to ourselves? Paul was, no matter what happens, no matter what happens to me when I get to Jerusalem, it doesn't matter. I am ready because I know 
whom I serve, and I know why I'm doing the things I'm doing, and so I will go. That is a good example for us. So in verse 17, we see the moment has arrived. Uh, In verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. And Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. I want to stop there for just a second. I, I love that Paul does this as soon as he gets there. Again, Luke is really good about progress reports. All throughout the book of Acts, the church grew in this way. The church was growing in numbers. They were going and they were presenting what God had done. There was just constantly progress reports. And we see here, Paul gets there. And what does he do? Listen to what God has done among the Gentiles through me, through my companions, through those of us who have been ministering. And again, this is an example of Paul's humility. He doesn't say, look at what I've done. No, it's look at what God has done through this ministry. All right, verse 20, it says this, when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Now here's where the problem kicks in. Verse 21, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. And so in, 20, or in verse 20 we, and following, we see this problem that comes up. The elders there and James tell them, well, here's the problem. These legalistic Jews, the Jews who had been circumcised, are telling people that you are telling the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, don't circumcise your kid, and, live, and do not live according to their customs. Pretty much, just don't listen to the law. Ignore the law. Have nothing to do with the law. That is what Paul is supposedly teaching. And we know that this is not the truth. Paul is not going and telling people just to ignore the law. He's telling people that the law cannot save you. The law cannot save you. It is only Jesus Christ whom can save you. It has nothing to do with the law. But Paul never says that the law is bad. A matter of fact, Paul is a defender of the law. For example, in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, he says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 8, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So Paul has no issue here with the law, 
what he has an issue with is them telling the Gentile believers, you have to be circumcised to be saved. You have to follow this law in order to be saved. You have to do this in order to be saved. And that's not the case. And so, this has created a problem, and, and this is what the elders come up with. Well, there are four men who have made a vow, probably a Nazarite vow, and here's what we want you to do. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their head shaved, and everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you are living in obedience to the law. These people are taking this vow, go with them in their purification, purify with them, and then pay their expenses. You see, at the end of a vow, there would be offerings that would need to be made. Usually it was a male and a female lamb. It was a ram. It was drink offerings. And these things were expensive. And so they're asking Paul, not only go and purify with these men, but also cover their expenses pay for those offerings that they have to make, and when they, you do this, they will, see, they will see what you really feel about the law, that you're living in obedience to the law. Don't worry about the Gentile believers as well. We've already written about that decision we made, and of course that's Acts 15, the council at Jerusalem, when they write this letter and tell them, you know, hey, it's, uh, these are things that we want to warn you about doing. Uh, avoid food sacrificed to idol from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, from sexual immorality. These are good things that they encourage them to stay away from. And so the next day, Paul takes the men and he purifies himself along with them. And he goes to the temple to let them know when the purification would end so that the offering could be made. You know, it's crazy to believe there are some people who think that Paul did the wrong thing here, that he caved and shouldn't have done that. He should have just been well, I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to defend myself. Well, here's another thing I love about Paul. Paul realized maybe if I do these things that have been asked to me by the elders, this would give me an opportunity to reach out and extend an olive branch to these people who have been bad-mouthing me and lying about me and give me an opportunity to witness. It becomes all things to all people so that the gospel will be preached. So it continues in verse 27. It says, When the seven days... We're nearly over. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested them and ordered them or ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then they asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. And so he's in the temple 
And these Jews stir up the crowd and say, hey, this is that same guy who's telling people not to believe in this or not to do this. And, and look, he's even brought this guy who's a Gentile into the temple, which we know that's not true. Remember, Paul is a, a Jew as well as a Roman citizen. He's a Jew. He knows not to take a Gentile into the temple. He knows that there is a separation of those who can go into the temple who cannot. And he is not going to take somebody into the temple that he's not supposed to take into the temple. But they stir up the crowd, and they seize him, and they start attacking him, and everything is in an uproar. The city is aroused. The people came running from all directions. They drag him to the, or from the temple, and the gate is shut, and they were trying to kill the man. They're trying to end his life now. Then we see that while they were killing him, the news reached the commander of the Roman troops, and the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he took some of the officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. So we see that news has come to the commander of the Roman troop. The, the Greek word for commander is tribune. And, and this tribune, this commander, would serve over 1,000 troops. And of these 1,000 troops, 760 would be infantry, 240 would be cavalry. And at this time, the commander would have been Claudius Lysias. And he's staying over at the fortress of Antonia. It was on the northwest corner of the temple, and it had a high vantage point. This was good because whenever an uproar would happen in the temple, when anything major would happen, they had such a good vantage point that if they needed to, they could see what was happening and they could get to the temple quickly to try to put things out. And so he took some of the officers and he took some of the soldiers and he ran down to the crowd and they stopped beating Paul. They saw these, uh, this commander and his army come in and they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander comes up, has Paul arrested, orders him to be bound with two chains, and then he asks who this man is and what he has done. Who is he? Why are you guys beating this man? Why are you trying to kill this man? That is a valid question. If you come in and you see somebody trying to kill somebody and you're trying to stop him, that's a good question to ask. Why are you trying to kill this man? What has he done? And here's the thing. They can't give an answer. Some are yelling some things, and another, some are shouting something different. The commander couldn't get to the truth because everyone was shouting something different. He's doing this. He's doing this. He's doing this. It's that mob mentality, right? Like everybody's shouting. Half the people don't know why they're there in the first place. But they're, they're shouting, and they're yelling, and he couldn't get at what was happening. And so he orders that he be taken into the barracks, and he reaches the steps. The violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers, and the crowds that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Sounds a little reminiscent to Jesus, doesn't it? Get rid of him, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. What has this man done? Kill him, kill him, kill him, over and over again. That's what they wanted, this man dead. And they're saying the same thing about Paul, get rid of him. And I think that there is a lesson that we can learn from this whole situation here, and that is this. Beware of dishonesty. Beware of dishonesty. You see, 
Satan is a liar, right? Like Satan is a liar. He is the master at lying. He is the king of lies. When it comes to lying, there is no one better at it than Satan. He is the king of lies. And so it's no wonder why we see Satan so often trying to knock down the church with lies. And look what happens here. What is the problem with the Jews? Over and over and over, they are sharing lies about Paul, about what Paul is preaching, what Paul is doing. They are constantly lying. Man, he tries to get at the church with lies, doesn't he? He tries to get at the believer with lies, doesn't he? Over and over and over, Satan tries to get at us with lies. That is an instrument that he uses. And the sad truth is this, one of the biggest things that tear a church apart are lies and gossip. So many a church has been torn apart by lies and by gossip. And this is so counter of what Jesus calls us to, what Scripture calls us to. We are supposed to be the opposite of gossip and lies. Ephesians 4, 29 tells us this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, and these are powerful words here. It says this, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So many of these things have to do with our words. The things we say about people, the gossip we tell, the lies we tell. And how about this? Proverbs 16, 28. A perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Man, how many relationships have ended because of gossip and lies? How many, you know, friendships, how many, you know, even marriages have ended because of gossip and lies? You see, if we are out there lying and gossiping about people, then we are not following, us, or following what God calls us to do, which is building one another up and lifting one another up, encouraging one another. Satan is the king of lies, and it's something that he tries to do to us to make us, you know, just argue, to gossip, to slander, to do all of these things. We have to be on guard, and we have to beware, beware of false or of of dishonesty of lying of gossip and so that's where we're going to stop actually in acts 21 but i think there is an important thing that goes throughout this whole this whole passage and it's this the importance of humility the importance of humility. I think when we read through chapter 21, we can take an example from Paul in his humility. And, you know, we can count the ways in which Paul is humble in this passage. First of all, he submits to God's plan. 
He could have followed the advice of the people and stayed where he was. He could have said, you know what, you're right, it is dangerous. I have so much more to do. I'm going to stay put. Thank you. But no, instead what he does is say, you're right, there is danger waiting. But instead of staying here, I am going to go where I feel called. And I'm going to do what God has called me to do no matter what happens And guess what happens? He gets to Jerusalem, and what happens when he gets to Jerusalem? Everything that had been told to him. He's bound in chains and arrested, just as people warned him. He was beaten, almost killed, if not for the help of the uh, officials. He submits to God's plan. Then he gets to Jerusalem, and as he's sharing what happened on his journey, as we mentioned earlier, He says, look what God has done. He doesn't say, look what I have done. Look what Paul has done. He says, look at what God has done. He realized that everything happens because of God and for God's glory and for God alone. It has nothing to do with him. What else does he do? Well, he submits to the authority of the eldership at the church in Jerusalem. He set an example for us today all the way back in Acts chapter 21 when he submits to the authority of the elders that have been entrusted. He could have maybe said, you know what? You're an elder, I'm an apostle. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you know what? If this is an opportunity to extend an olive branch, I'll do it. I'll listen to what you guys have to tell me to do. He submits to authority. You see, all of these things that happen in 21, you can find an answer. It's all about humility. It's all about humility. It's all about putting God's will, God's plan first. It's about making yourself less and making God and others around you more important. It's important to be humble. Colossians 3.12 tells us this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are all things that you should have as God's chosen people, and one of these things being humility. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 6, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. He must become more, we must become less. It should not be so I am up here with God. It is God is up here by himself. And then it's the needs of others, us. There is an importance in humility, and you know there's actually benefits to being humble. Proverbs 22.4, humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Proverbs 11.2 tells us when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. And James chapter 4, verse 6 says, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. A better life if you, are hum- or if you show humility, if you are humble, riches, honor, life, wisdom. These things come from humility. 
And as we talk about that issue of can you pay the cost, it starts with humility because in order to pay the cost, in order to say I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to give up what I need to give up to do the things that God has called me to do, it starts with humility. Are you willing to make others more important than yourself? Are you willing to make God more important than yourself? It starts with humility. If you want to stop lying and stop gossiping, it starts with humility. You see others more than you see yourself. You put others above yourself. That's humility. Paul is an example of humility. And he, he followed God's plan. He, he, you know what? I'll do whatever God asked me to do. If I have to give up my life, I will do it. Whatever it takes, I will pay the cost. That's humility to say, I don't want to gossip, I don't want to lie, I want to view others bigger than myself, that's humility. And Paul is an example to us of humility. And here's why I think he's such an example of humility. I think he's an example of humility because he understands what's been done for him. He understands that God sent his son for him, for us. It's we are better able to be humble if we stop for a minute and think about what it is that God has done for us. You know, it's like David was saying this morning, he came from a warm home into our cold, dark lives for us, not because of anything we've done, just because God is so awesome and loves us so much that he's willing to do that for us. When we stop and we think about this, it should result in humility to think this is what God has done for me. It's no longer about myself but others. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid the cost for us, and are we willing to do the same? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning, and as they do, I want you to ask yourself this morning, are you willing to be humble and to submit to him? Are you willing this morning to sacrifice your wants, your desires, your dreams, your needs, if they don't line up with what God wants for you? Are you willing to sacrifice what, you know, maybe it's relationships. <clears throat> maybe it's a job that you have to sacrifice to follow him. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to sacrifice and to pay that cost? This morning, are you willing to put away gossip and slander? Are you willing to put away the things that you've been saying about people? This morning, are you willing to be humble? and to, to put yourself last and to put others, to put God above yourself. And maybe this morning you're here and you're feeling like, man, I cannot sacrifice. I can't do it. I've, been, I've, I've tried. I've been praying. I, I just, I struggle with this. And maybe this morning what you need to do is you need to spend some time just talking with God. And right where you're sitting, uh, if you need to spend time in prayer, do so. Or maybe this morning, you can't sacrifice because you've never actually 
given your life to him. Maybe this morning now the sacrifice that you need to give is your life to him. And if that's the case, on our connect cards, you can fill out information. We'd love to talk with you. If you want to come up here and talk, I'd love to. This morning, are we willing to pay the cost to give up everything we think we want, we need, we desire in order so that the gospel can be shared? Are we willing to put away, you know, petty gossip, lies? Are we willing to follow the example of humility that Paul has set for us to make others, to put God first, others second before ourselves? This morning, if you have a decision to make, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing.